This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Spark My Muse. I have a very special guest today, Gabrielle Earnshaw, and she is a writer, editor, speaker, and independent scholar on the life and work of Henry Nouwen. She is also the founding archivist for Henry J. M. Nouwen Archives, a position she's held for 16 years and currently serves as the chief archivist for the Henry Nouwen Legacy Trust. She's written the book called Henry Nouwen and the Return of the Prodigal Son. Thank you, Gabrielle, for sharing some of your time with me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Maybe before we dig in, we can talk a little bit about your work as an archivist and, and what that has entailed. Sure. Okay. Um, so I was trained as an archivist, and that was uh, how I started my my career. I guess I still am an archivist, but although I have shifted more into this one topic, Henry Nouwen. Um, uh, so what happened is when Henry Nouwen died, he left his literary papers to his good friend, Sister Sue Mosteller. And she actually only found out that she was his literary executrix after the will was read. Um, but he picked he picked uh, Sue well. He knew that she would take good care of his papers. And she did. Uh, what she wanted was to bring, um, to have all of the papers quite close to his home at large daybreak. You might, you and your listeners might uh, know that Henry Nouwen, for the last 10 years of his life, although he lived most of his life, he was born in Holland and then lived most of his life in the United States uh, teaching as a professor, he, for the last 10 years, he was living in a place called Richmond Hill in a Larche community. And Larche is, is a community that was founded by Jean Vanier, four people with uh, with uh, mental disabilities. And Henry lived there, which is, Richmond Hill is about close about, I don't know, 10, 10 miles from Toronto. And she wanted his papers to be close by to him. Um, and so she, what she did is she donated them to the University of St. Michael's College, um, which is part of the University of Toronto. And I was hired on a six-month contract to uh, process his papers. And in fact, those six months became 16 years. <laughs> and uh, yes, it, it actually took, um, I love to tell the story of how it took 10 years to just process his correspondence. Um, his correspondence, um, which included 16,000 incoming letters that he um, uh, preserved through all of his many, many moves. Um, these letters from his readers and from his friends and from his colleagues and his family were very precious to him. And so when I was first hired, um, the thing the thing that just sort of got my heart pumping was going, Sue brought me to um, the attic where all of his file uh, filing cabinets were, and they were filled, they were filled to the brim with mm. all of these letters. And that was, you know, an archivist's sort of dream was to, <laughs> you know, to be the person to be able to process these and, you know, um, discover the 
the you know the people that I might know in the who had written him, but also I, I always get more struck by the beautiful letters that come from from his readers and um, re, you know people who who were living out um, many many of a lot of the wisdom that he was sharing in his books and in his lectures and and so um, that you know that work was was absolutely. Um, well, it was transformative for me because I'd been an archivist for other organizations, other people, um, and had enjoyed the work a, a lot. Um, I do enjoy archival work very much, but it was also the uh, the person of who Henry Nowen was, and um, and as well as the, the content. I I was. Um, it was like he came into my life just at the moment that I was ready and needing um, the kind of words and wisdom that he was that he was that he had shared in his lifetime. And then I also have to say that I was also transformed almost equally by meeting his friends. Um, he had such special friendships, and his friends, um, like Sue Mosteller, um, like his brother Laurent Nowen, these people um, became became sort of part of my circle, and 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 they, many of them are quite extraordinary people in their own in their own right. And so I've, so I became for the sixteen years I was really immersed in. In Henry Nowen's writing, I was reading you know, drafts of his work as well as the you know the final work. I was reading his correspondence. I was reading his teaching notes. I was reading his sermons. I was meeting his friends. I was traveling to Holland. You know, I've I've really um, it became. Uh, I guess I I am now um, realizing that that my career as an archivist shifted to a vocation, and um, and then. After 16 years, I started. Um, I was asked to edit a book of letters, a book of letters, and so that that really set me off on a new path, and that was to be um, editing some of his writing, which I've done now. I've edited three books by him, and this is my first book about him. Mm. Well, it is so interesting in the book to read about Sister Sue. And just how fantastic of a friend she was and really, I think, gets maybe as an unsung hero in his life. Um, although I'm sure people know of her who, who know him um, and who are more related to his story personally. But reading about her and how she encouraged him and lifted him up and helped him reconcile with people in his life, um, I was very touched and inspired by her her commitment to Henry and also her belief in his work and, and her desire to see him continue on with his work, even though he was having at times such debilitating problems. If you've read some of Henry now and you know how important friendship was to him, he took friendship very, very um, seriously. I think it's part of the life of a celibate actually is to, is to have a, have a, a um, the, the importance of friendship is is paramount, and it was it was to Henry um, as well. And he um, his friendship with Sue was this meeting of meeting of equals. I mean, I, he had a lot of friends, you know, that maybe 
he was he was more their teacher. He was more their mentor. Um, but with Sue, it was really this meeting of equals and and really this love that she had for him was was so healing for him, as um, the letters show in this book that I um, just wrote to find her letters and to see how devoted she was to his healing after a very, very, uh, I mean, a severe depression, a debilitating depression. And she really walked with him through that out to the other side. And it's a beautiful friendship to, to read about and to, I'm now friends with Sue and just to hear more stories about um, how how they influenced each other. It's very beautiful. What's so interesting about your book is that it talks, it's a book about a book, but it's also about, of course, the man. And uh, especially in the beginning, how the painting of Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son is so transformative in his life, like a a visio divina. Um, And it would be good for people who aren't familiar with that term or who don't know about the painting's prominence in Henry's life and, and the transformative quality it had in his sort of spiritual growth. Maybe you could just set the stage for that. Don't give everything away. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, well, what's interesting is I, I actually think that the return of the prodigal son by Henry Nouwen is a masterwork in Visio Divina. I mean, I mean, what, and Visio Divina means entering into a, uh, in, a, well, let's start with Lexio Divina. Lexio Divina um, means entering into scripture or entering into text. And, and it, it, it means really from shifting our attention on the words from our head to analyzing them, you know, comparing them, uh, you know, sort of trying to draw, you know, historical references from them and moving instead to experience and to to heart to to one's heart so it's taking lexio divina would be to take a familiar um scriptural passage and read it several times but but in a way it's like rolling those words around in your soul and sort of seeing where which one which one of the words which one of the the um the the meaning of the word holds most resonance for for you in at that moment, um, Henry Henry would practice Lexio Divina every morning. Um, in his morning prayer, he would use the the you know the lectionary reading of the day, and then he would sit with that text, and and again not not looking for the historical references or the theological meaning, but more, but more how does this. He would ask the question, what does this mean for my life today? Um, how does it connect with what I have been living or what I anticipate to be living? And so it's really um, entering into the text. So you would become each each person mentioned. You would try to um, use your imagination to enter into the, the the world. So if it's if the scripture is about the desert or is it about inside the temple or it's to actually bring that to to life within your imagination. And Visio Divina is using um, something visual. To, and um, so a painting, a painting of a parable um, is what Henry Nouwen used as a kind of um, 
uh, way to enter into into Jesus's teaching. What does the parable actually mean for my life? And Henry Henry looked at this painting so thoroughly. Um, it actually he looked at this painting for nine years, um, and each time he would, you know, when he uh, at first he was he was one of the observers. He was one of the the people on the outskirts of the painting, and he was looking in at it in a kind of a longing way. He wanted to be the young man, you know, being held by by his father. Um, then he then he became and he entered into what was it like to, what is it like to be the prodigal son and he would you know imagine himself with the torn clothes with the with the you know the shoes that are barely um on um the son's feet what what does that mean how much did he walk in those shoes and it's a really i mean it's really using one's imagination to enter into into the story so that you can take the meaning that you need from it. And Henry Nouwen also had this very beautiful um, practice of taking either words, if he had used Lexio Divina, or images, if he had used Visio Divina, and he would place them in the inner chamber of his heart. And he would do this um, very uh uh, intentionally and consciously. And so he even describes how certain images, like some of Vincent van Gogh's paintings, um, uh, a special painting that his parents had um, by Marc Chagall, these, he says, sort of entered, you know, were permanently in the permanent gallery mm-hmm. <laughs> of his inner um, interior space. And so he could call on them whenever he needed them. And it reminds me that, you know, some people will memorize prayers and they'll, or memorize a Psalm and they'll have it, um, as, you know, as the sort of like the staff that they need in difficult times. And, and that's what Henry Nouwen did with, with paintings and with icons and with, with visual images. And he also did it with words. He would take one word a day and kind of almost like, clip it to a clipboard in an interior clipboard. And then that word would be the word that he would walk with for the day. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting how, for me, from a spiritual formation perspective, and that's kind of, that's kind of my jam, <laughs> is that I love how he, he is allowing himself to be transformed by God through these different means that that are always around us, perhaps in paintings and in scripture, but he is really letting God work those deeply into his inner life to not just, not just memorize them, but of course memorize them, but like really transform him at sort of like the cellular level. And what he does with the painting too, you mentioned is that he becomes in his mind, learns a lesson as he sees himself as each of the characters within the painting. And maybe you could talk about what are each of those characters and a little bit of what he learns or, or maybe just pick one. And um, he, he allows himself to really be transformed by being each character. 
Yeah, that's such a good word. I think that he, I mean, he calls it a spiritual adventure. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's uh, how he sort of saw his life was this adventure uh, of the spirit. Um, and I think that, I think that he was, uh, that the word transformation is really important and, and true. Uh, he he saw this painting at a really low point in his life. He had many low points in his life. He was actually, and I think this is what maybe draws people to him. He he was um, very a, a very anxious person. He 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 was nervous and he um, he was needy. I mean, and I'm not I'm not ascribing these um, features to him. He 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 is very honest about about these. Uh, in a way, he he had a kind of. Um, a, a wound, and I, and I I think you know this this sort of idea that he was never good enough, and he was were, were people really loving him, or were did they just like you know like what he said, and and were they just clapping because they had to, you know he just had this 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 self um, rejection, and um and I would say that he was on the he was really searching for glimpses of God, but then also glimpses of God that loved him. And when he saw the painting, it was like, that's what happened. It was like this, this, he had a, an, a, an instantaneous, and he, I mean, he wasn't seeing the painting in the hermitage where it's, you know, this massive, beautiful painting. He was actually seeing it for the first time as a poster, right, you know, right. a, a worn out poster on the back of somebody's, uh, you know, office. It wasn't, but, but he was so worn down himself that the, just to see the young man kneeling in front of this, the way that Rembrandt paints the father is he's very, very old. He's, um, you know, Henry even um, believes that he's blind. He's, he's, he is um, hunched over, um, but the, it, it, it is completely clear in the way that Rembrandt paints it, that he is loving and welcoming and blessing his son who has come home, the, the prodigal son. And so Henry really, um, resonated with the younger son and he wanted to be that younger son with these beautiful hands on his shoulders that Henry identifies as Rembrandt possibly painting as a woman's hand and a male hand so this kind of the idea that God is masculine and feminine um he, he even says that, you know, the boy's head was was um, the way Rembrandt paints him. It looks like he could be like a newborn child's sort of wet, um, you know, head having just emerged from the womb. So this imagery of God as mother, as as womb um, is is there. So and that's where he wanted to be. Um, but then he had to to. Um, realize that the painting actually also had some tension in it and which reflected the own his own tension the, the tension in his own life and that was this uh, older son and the older son is standing all, his face has some light on it same the same light that the father's face has in the painting but he's outside the circle of light and he's holding himself rigidly. Um, he, his hands are in front of him like a shield. He's, whereas the father's hands are, you know, in this open embrace on the young boy's shoulders, the older son's hands are clasped. And he's, and this, as Henry um, identifies 
with this older son, he realizes there's parts of him that are sort of stuck, calcified in anger, resentment, competitiveness, a sense of, you know, injustice. You know, the older son, as we know from the parable, is is just so angry at his younger brother for for leaving and then now coming home and and he's been there all along taking care of his father taking care of the of the uh, family business and and he he quite literally cannot cannot get out of his own rage um that he, after all that he's done his father is killing the fat calf for the younger for the younger son who took all the family money and squandered it. And so Henry Henry really enters into the older son, um, and it's not it's not uh, an easy thing. And I think I think what Henry is wanting us to do is is do the same thing. So who are when we're the younger son, you know what what aspects of our personality of our life. Of the way of the stories we tell about ourselves um, are like the younger son, and then how are we like the older son? And I think a lot of people who have, um, you know, heard this parable a lot will probably relate to one son or the other. Um, what Henry does, which is, which is, I think, you know, for me, it was, I found it just astonishing. He instead of staying as the younger son or the elder son, he, through Sue's help, like you identified at the beginning, he, he wonders if maybe he needs to also consider himself the father, the welcoming father. This is sort of where he really throws down the, the gauntlet there. I mean, it's a spiritual challenge that even he felt a little incapable of. And, when I was writing this book and doing the research in the archives to find the letters from Sue saying, you know, I really encourage you to step into the role of the father. I think it's time in your life to become the father. But she had to keep repeating that to him because it's, it's actually a very hard thing. The father in the parable and in the painting He's the one unconditionally loving. He is accepting uh, without a word. You know, the younger son probably had, when he was coming back home, he was thinking, okay, I'm going to say this. I'm going to apologize. And I'm going to like really grovel. The father wants none of it. In fact, the, you know, the parable has the father running out of the house. I mean, r- literally running this image of the extravagance of God's unconditional love is really what grabbed Henry Nowen and what, you know, I think grabs readers of his book because it's like a divine reconciliation. You know, it's this divine consolation. It's this idea that no matter what we've done, we can return and the God will come out and run towards us. <laughs> Yeah, and and Henry identifies that this receiving of God's love is often what what um, people will not realize they're doing. That they're not actually that they think that they're looking for God all the time. In fact, God is looking for them, and it's sort of um, shifting shifting our way of thinking about about our relationship with God. 
And so just to, just to finish with the final evolution or transformation that Henry makes, he essentially says, I will become the father. I will accept this call. And he calls it a call that all of us have. It's to be the one who blesses. It's to be the one who welcomes. It's to be the hospitable host or hostess. And I think how this is so powerful right now in, in the days that we're living right now in the pandemic, because in a way, I think collectively, we're being asked to enter into a spiritual adulthood, right? Into a, into a maturity. That's what Henry Nouwen was challenging himself to do, to stop being the, the child, to first claim our sonship or our daughtership. But then I think some of us, especially of a certain age, can actually also then become the mother or the father, the generative, creative, loving force. And our world is crying out for people to to do that. And Henry would be the first to say it's not easy. It means that you do have to give up the, you know, the ways of the the child. But the I, I believe it really is what we're being called to. I know that I feel called in that way. That it's it's important that we, you know, rest and be the prodigal son who who allows God's hands to to be on our shoulder and we feel that love. We really sink into that love and we, and we walk through our anger and resentment of the older son. And we, we then become the, the source of love that the world is so in need of um, generosity, kindness, warmth, patience, all of these beautiful qualities of love and that's what we're called into right now. I think if anyone can answer that call, it's <laughs> now's the time to do it. That is such a good point. With with being inside a lot more and having things curtailed, it's a kind of hermitage that <laughs> that we have been forced into where you have to take whether it's your spiritual formation or whatever it is, your your growth or the weaknesses of your personality or your life into question, think, you know, am I shopping because it's therapy? Have I been distracting myself because I don't want to feel discomfort? Um, and all those things to, to realize that when they get called into question, we might have to rise to the occasion of better maturity. Um, and one other thing I wanted to, to really underscore that, that you were driving at a moment ago was that this change, this big adventure of Henry deciding it's time to be the father. And, you know, because he, he, he was so sort of heartsick to be received as the son. But what's so interesting to me, and for, for anybody who's like me, who's struggled with self-acceptance or having trouble with self-worth and feeling, I can relate to Henry in some of those ways where I feel like... Um, working to earn love or something like that, or I'm not enough, is that he realizes, I believe, that 
he has to be the father to himself and receive himself first before he can be the father to anyone else. And he has to give himself all the, that love, kind of be the son and the father at the same time. Would you say that? That's right. Yeah, that's so important. It's this, again, it's this um, claiming. It's a claiming of our identity um, as as children of God, as the beloved of God. And and Henry Nouwen took uh, at least 50 years to get there. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, and then he, at the same time um, that his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, came out, um, which took nine years to write, um, another book came out that I sort of see as its sister um, book, and it's called The Life of the Beloved. And this is really where Henry explores this, the importance of claiming our identity as as the the children of God, as the son or daughter of God. And and really, yes, you can, it's, a, it's a really important point to make. You can't become the mother or father without without claiming your sonship or your daughtership. That's that's the first it's it's receiving love. And I think that that's that's where a lot of people relate to his book is that this it's it's one thing to give love. Um, you know, I'm sure there's in all of our lives, we know how how wonderful it is to to shower someone with love, but it's sometimes it's harder for us to receive the love. and And I think that Henry really had to go through that crucible. And the 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 painting, which I see as his icon, it's like well, he called it his personal painting. Um, I see it as as well as his personal icon. It, it really gave him the visual imagery of how God welcomes us. Um, at all times, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to, you know, we don't have, he, I mean, the, the prodigal son got on his knees and he, and he's kneeling against his father's chest in the painting. But God isn't asking us to do that. God wants to just welcome us home. And that's, you know, to, to really claim that um, it's, that's, that's, you know, that's the first, <sighs> That's the first and 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 one of the hardest things to do is to is just keep claiming that over and over again, but then what Henry does is he cl- he goes further, and that's why this book is so challenging. Um, he goes from you know sort of getting such relief and consolation from from seeing God's unconditional love for him, but then he 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 goes further, and and he's and I need to be that unconditionally unconditionally love loving presence in the world it's amazing uh, your book talks about how after he sees this this poster of the painting that he writes 11 books in four years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was that's pretty transformative but um and then he's also it's not like um a happy epiphany where things just go great he's actually really really struggling and he has this obsessive um, relationship with Nathan Ball, who he seems to adore, and then and then Nathan is probably like, okay, too much, <laughs> too much, uh-huh. hair, too much Harry right now, um, and yeah. so then he is feels so rejected, and he speaks about this, I think, very frankly in his in his book, um, The Inner Voice of Love, talking about sort of recovering from uh, that neediness, or maybe not even recovering, but just moving through that neediness. We're not talking about 
this, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is after he sees the painting, he's not sort of like in an ecstatic, <laughs> happy <laughs> state no, where he just no. produces all this stuff. And like, yeah, I feel close to God now. He's actually oh. in a, tossed in a storm for years. Yeah. And, and, uh, right up to the end of his life. I mean, right up to the end of his life. So, yes, I think that that's really important to to say and to know um, that Henry Nouwen, even though he ha- he was able to come to these very profound insights, he, you know, he to live them is something quite quite different. I mean, it's it's like he came to the insights, he shared those insights, but but then it's to live them was something different. But I have to say that he did live. Uh, he became, according to the people who knew him, he did become much more um, c- calmer, more, um, he did start blessing, literally blessing people. He was a Catholic priest, so he, he uh, you know, had opportunity for that in, in uh, liturgy. He started um, being, yeah, being, being the, the person who stayed home. I, uh, and welcoming people, but I want to that point to your really important point. I think the book is also about um, Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, is also about leaving. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son, a story of homecoming. But the book is also about leaving and how God encourages us to leave. So it's not that we're that you know that we have to follow. Um, you know, sort of stay, stay still once we've, once we've returned home. It's, it's to be able to leave again, to go out and explore and to become who we are, who we are, our true selves, and then come back. You know, Henry used to say that life is just, you know, the, the 10, the 20, 30, 40 years, uh, you know, however long our life is to say to God, I love you too, (laughs) you know, and there's this encouragement in Henry's way of, of expressing the spiritual life that, that we are to leave and we're going to return. Another thing he talks about is that we're never going to stop being the prodigal son or the older son or the, we will be oscillating, vacillating between these, the child that, that sort of is selfish and thinking of themselves and then also contending with bitterness and resentment. And I think that that's the human condition. But Henry and God ultimately is is asking us to keep returning. When you find yourself leaving, also keep returning. If you think about our moment right now, I, I see this really as the the moment where we're wondering do we need to change direction? Do we need to return? To return to home. Home could mean truth, or home could mean love. The younger son was is referred to as squandering, squandering his riches, squandering his life, exploiting. You know, he was exploiting women. He was exploiting. I, I just feel like, in a way, our society can be seen like the younger son. And now, can we? stop our squandering can we come to our senses like the parable says you know that if he comes to his his senses and realize he, he can go back home can we do the same thing i i guess i want to just yeah really underscore that that henry nowen was far from achieving all of that he was writing about but he points away he points the way and he uh, i think another important point is that he 
would say to us who are, if we do want to accept this challenge, that what's imperative to do are three things. And, and he would use this pattern. He does this pattern based on Jesus's own life of spending time with God in solitude in stillness and silence as one of the most important activities of our day is to spend time with God is to commune with God is to connect with God, listen to God the way that Jesus did. Jesus would take time away on the mountaintop or in the desert, but he would spend time with his father. And then we are to spend time with our community. Like Jesus would come down from the mountaintop and then, and then spend time with his disciples we can spend time with our friends and laugh and, um, you know, enjoy, enjoy life and, um, all it has to offer and sort of build up a bonds of fellowship and love and feel love and receive love. And then we go out and we do our ministry. And it doesn't necessarily mean if you're ministry, meaning that, you know, you've got to be a, an ordained minister, but I, but I think, it means to to go out and be of service, be be of help, um, where it could be just being, you know, a very loving presence in your household. That might be it, or it could be as much as going into prisons right now and and helping there or with refugees. I mean, it, but that's the the model that Jesus gave us, and that's the model that Henry would say in order to really. Uh, take on this this challenge of being a loving presence in the world. We need to connect with God. We need to connect with our friends, and and we need to from that place go out into the world and say, where can I be kind, generous, accepting all of those things. I love how you talk about that we're not just one of the characters in the in the painting that we're, you know, we will vacillate. And I think that's not just realistic, <laughs> which it is, but that that is normal life and spiritual development. Normal means that that you're going to feel different things at different times. You're going to be at different places at different times. And uh, that's really important point because that's another thing that people can do if they're anything like Henry is just beat yourself up when you're like, oh now I'm the sun again oh no mm-hmm. you know it's just like but you can you can be the sun too and then you can and then you can move on to something else and I think um, someone had said to me recently this this point about the prodigal son when the story is read to people who experience poverty who are not in affluent areas like Canada or the United States, and they tell the whole story, there is one thing that stands out to them more than anything else that doesn't stand out to, to us. Um, and it's that, that there was a famine. And I think that that's a really interesting point that ties into where we are now. So we are in a, we are in a kind of famine in the sense of pandemic, where Typical things have been sort of turned off. And it's then when the son comes to his senses and he thinks, 
supplies have run out. <laughs> There's no toilet paper. No, but the supplies have run out. He has to go feed pigs. And he, he's like, what does this come to? I have to go back. And it's interesting that that is the human, I think that's the human condition. That if we find ourselves in this place of famine or this place of, you know, I didn't expect myself to be feeding the pigs and eating the pods here. There's spiritually or in any other way that there is a way to come back into God's embrace, which has never changed, which has never been turned against us and also to receive ourselves back again, too. And I think that that's the beauty of how Henry opens up that painting. You know, it's you think oh, it's just a painting. It's like, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, there's a lot going on here and a lot of layers. I'm taking a moment now for a little pledge drive for the Spark My Muse podcast. If you could take a moment of your time to go to paypal.me forward slash Lisa Cologne Delay and pay what you can, it would help greatly to support the show. You can be a monthly supporter at any amount you choose at patreon.com forward slash Spark My Muse. And that unlocks weekly access passes to all the show notes and other news and goodies. It makes a big difference when you support the show, whether you write a review on iTunes or share this episode with a friend. Please help me support the show, grow it, and make it financially viable. Enjoy the rest of the program. His book is profound and deeply moving but hearing all the backup and all the letters and all the correspondence of what brought that to be is definitely a, a treat and a treasure when you were speaking i was i was thinking about how um yeah the, the, this painting hangs in the hermitage um in uh saint petersburg and henry went to see the painting finally like he he, he studied it uh, for he first saw it on the poster and then he studied it in books and all of that kind of thing. And then finally he got the chance to go to Russia and to see the painting. And what mm. I love is that I found an oral history interview, um, which the person who accompanied Henry to, to Russia, his name was Bob Massey. And he, and he describes, you know, going into the hermitage to see the painting and, and for him painting was actually kind of gloomy <laughs> And and he wasn't terribly interested in the subject. And he kind of, he said, if Henry hadn't have been there with me, he probably would have walked right past it, which I'm sure we can all all kind of have had that experience, you know, being in a in a in an art gallery and just not you know, just not really connecting with any of the paintings, just sort of walking by these masterpieces that other people may have spent their entire lifetime um, you know, studying. And and but that, you know, for Henry, it, there was something about this this the way that Rembrandt painted, I mean, he had, he had probably given sermons on the parable many times. He'd probably seen a lot of depictions of the parable of the return of the prodigal son, but it's the something about the way that Rembrandt painted it um, that really touched his soul. And it became this soul journey. And, um, and he was able to use it as a, as a form of transformation, like we said at the beginning. I was so interested, too, to read on page 145 that he actually founded a new painting that brought 
new insights to him, the trapeze metaphor. And maybe you could just give us a little taste of, oh, yeah. of some of what that was about. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, I mean, Henry, Henry was, um, I mean, the way he was wired was to be looking for God at, at, at all times. So that's where he was um, sort of, that's where he was, his attention was, that's where, what he was attuned to. So before he saw the, the return of the prodigal son painting, he had spent a lot of time with some Russian icons. I mean, he, he had spent a lot of time with some Vincent van Gogh paintings. He was very visually attuned. Um, but then, and I just, I just love the, the metaphor of this is that he, he, he goes to a, uh, a, a, a circus with his father and uh, they're, they're sitting there in this, and you know, the circus is fun. He thinks it's great. His dad and him are kind of on really good terms at this point. They're both, I think, you know, Henry was now in his sixties and, and his dad was in his eighties and they were enjoying this circus. But then the next thing that happens, un, you know, un, Henry now was, uh, unprepared, this trapeze troupe comes up through the tent and he mm. becomes transfixed. And so what I like to think about is if I was sitting beside Henry, I probably would have thought, wow, this is a really good show. You know, these guys are really athletic and wow, what a, what a good show. But he did not see that. What he saw was God catching him. That's what he saw. He did. He saw it through the eyes of faith. He saw it with his spiritual vision. He saw that this idea of, and I guess it comes back to this idea of leaving and returning. You know, the way that the trapeze, the, the flyer, lets go of the bar, jumps, and then comes back, and the catcher catches the flyer. And so the catcher is God, and the flyer is us. And, and then he, he, you know, that, that's his first sort of aha moment. And he's actually so excited by this that he goes the next night and the next night and his dad is no longer coming with them. He eventually meets the troupe. He starts to study them. Um, there are all of these notebooks in the archives of his drawings of the rigging of, for the trapeze. And he, he really does become, um, fascinated with this trapeze troupe and suddenly a lot of themes about the spiritual life come come for him they come alive so it's it's you know the trapeze troupe is like a community they're like friends they have to deal with failure they have to deal with with hope they have to deal with brokenness they have to deal with um you know um disappointment they have to deal with with uh, pain so uh, there's a lot of the spiritual, you know, um, aspects of the spiritual life. You can you can see how he would, well, once he pointed it out to us, how this this trapeze troupe actually helps helps us see how to how to live our spiritual lives, and that's what he started um, getting quite excited about <laughs> after the return of the prodigal son. After he saw the painting, he started getting excited about this trapeze troupe. And unfortunately for us, he died before he was able to, to actually fully understand why this particular troupe was so, um, a lot enlivening for him. We have notebooks and we have, uh, a few articles that he wrote, but it's, um, it's his great unfinished work, um, was why this troop struck him so profoundly as an image of our, 
of our life in God. It's really neat how he would so carefully study something to understand himself better and understand how God works in our inner world like that. He's so saturated with the spiritual, uh, no matter what condition he's in, uh, whether it's, you know, whether it's euphoric or, or in the depths of despair, he's still so saturated that um, he can't help but to see the spiritual in all those things. The physicality of the trapeze troupe was really where, where he was, that was his sort of growing edge. You know, he, he was a person who had, had, uh, you know, sort of neglected his body, his physical self. He was so, it was very much about emotions and thinking so very very head um you know he, he was cerebral in a way but he was also extremely um emotional and very feeling centered um but his body the, the you know moving his body being in his body was something that he wasn't he wasn't comfortable with and so part of the attraction to the trapeze i think um was the physicality of it the way that the that that human beings can use our bodies to to experience life and to you know to all of our senses and and the sort of the the, the joy the joy in in being human in being in being in a body and I think I think that 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 had um, that was something he hadn't explored very much up to that point. Um, it seemed like he was ready. It was like to use a, a circus metaphor, a trapeze metaphor. I think he was ready to step off that platform, you know, and start flying in that way. And in fact, there's a, there's a, a scrap of a manuscript on the trapeze where he says, you know, the top of the document says, um, what is the risk? And I think he was starting to, to think about what he, how he wanted to talk more about what it's like to be in a body. I read Adam, God's Beloved, in a theology of disability class uh, that I was in. And I have a, a son who has autism. And that was a very touching and moving book to see how he was transformed by caring for and living alongside his... Well, it was a core member. Adam was a core member. And then he died only a few months after Adam died. That was a physicality issue as well, where he is caring for, feeding, bathing, helping in very physical, bodily ways. And I think that was something, of course, he wouldn't have been used to whatsoever. You know, that doesn't come up in regular life. That, I think, maybe in coordination with the trapeze troupe, he was really edging over to understanding himself maybe in embodied ways or ways that he had shut down or couldn't couldn't express as a celibate too in, in those ways as well I'd, his life seems cut short because it seems like he died too young obviously but do you know what was the last book that he wrote chronologically adam was the okay, book okay. was the book so you've just mentioned that so that's the book about um his friend Adam, the core member from Larsh, and he had that book in his uh, in his uh, his attaché case um, when he died. And so he uh, so what happened with that is that the book was um, taken up by Sue Sue Mosteller and the publisher um, Orbis Books. So um, 
and the editor there is Robert Ellsberg. So Sue, Sue and Robert completed that book for Henry. It was it was nearly finished. So they just they did the final, you know, the final touches on it. So that that's the book that was that he was writing at the time instead of the trapeze book, which is quite interesting. You know, he had the notes for his trapeze book, but he was still he still wasn't 100% understanding, I guess, the links between Adam, his book on Adam about the importance of caring for, for, um, for Adam and how that linked to his, to his fascination with the trapeze. I mean, he was, he was slowly making those connections, but they weren't solid yet. Um, so that, yeah, that is part of the, the, I guess the sadness that he that he didn't live longer to to give us um, that the sort of the complete the complete version um, for that new way of the, I mean sort of a, a new way of thinking about the spiritual life that's that that was more embodied. And also, it was fascinating to know that uh, when the book came out, it didn't make much of a splash. It's only been this kind of long you know, long, slow burn into becoming a classic and, and so transformative for so many people. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was sort of forgotten when it first came out. And that just goes to show that if, if we have something that we want to write about, and it doesn't seem to catch on right away, it doesn't mean that it's hasn't been worth it to to write about. Yeah, it will find its readers. I think that that's the, the lesson here. And, um, and I think it's, it's still still his most popular work, even though he wrote 39 books. Um, and wow. there are, some of them are very, very good as well. Um, you've referred to The Inner Voice of Love, which is a favorite of mine. And But The Return of the Prodigal Son is this book that seems to, uh, I, I feel like, I mean, Henry Nouwen had this open way of writing that I wish I knew how to do it because he seems to, the way he writes doesn't um, exclude anyone. So, he, you know, his his writing can be read by anyone on the, you know, from a very conservative Catholic to a very progressive United Church person, you know, there's there's a it's read by all the people in between. I think that's part of its appeal, but I think also just this portrait of this loving, extravagantly loving God that welcomes us home at all times, no matter what we've done. We've never done anything bad enough that God will not welcome us home. That message is so needed. Um, you know, and I think people just drink it up. And and then I think there's a small um, industry in, in posters of the return of the prodigal son, because I think people want to have it in their house to remind themselves that God is not a punishing God. God is not out to get me. God is not harsh. God is gentle, loving, motherly, fatherly, you know, all the best of, of those words, you know, feminine, masculine. And, and that's the, the power of his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. The book is called Henry Nouwen and the Return of the Prodigal Son, The Making of a Spiritual Classic by Gabrielle Earnshaw. Where can people find more about the book or about you and your work? Okay, well, I, I have a uh, website. It's pretty easy to find, gabrielleearnshaw.com. And um, you can find information about the book there. The publisher is Paraclete Press. So um, you could go to Paraclete, the website for Paraclete Press, and they also have some information about the book. We're going to have a webinar about the book um, on May 12th when it is released. And I'm very, very excited because um, Ronald Rollheiser has agreed to come into conversation with me. He is... Um, 
I think some, I think you, you know, as well as your listeners, he's um, a beautiful voice for the spiritual life these days. And he um, mentions and speaks about Henry now in in really um, important ways. And so to have him with me is, is, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored by that. And um, I think it should be a great conversation. We're, we're going to be interviewed by Karen Pascal, who's the head of the Henry Nouwen Society. So it's going to be, I anticipate it will be a quite a rich uh, conversation. I appreciate your work and uh, let me know what you're doing next because it would be fun to have you back on. Oh, thanks, Lisa. It's great. 